Idea Fountain, life-changing conversations. Hey, it's Julie Pilot. We taped this episode of the Idea Fountain in the end of May on social justice with Mike De La Roca, and there were two major things going down at the time that we taped it. One, the border crisis and immigration with children being locked up was at peak horror. Two, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had defeated Joseph Crowley in the New York primaries the night before. Uh, That day, it was a new name to us, but a powerful voice I expect the world to hear for a really long time. Most months when I tape the Idea Fountain, I have friends over to the house for a fireside chat with guests. This episode was especially powerful because it's about a call to action. It's about everyone getting involved in social justice, everyone that was in the room that night, everyone listening to this, and especially me. I learned a ton from Mike De La Roca that night, but for the first time on the Idea Fountain, I actually want to start the episode by introducing everybody that was in the room. I'm Forrest. I'm Angela. I'm Laura. Carla. Marcos. Lori. Carlos. Victoria. <laughs> Brit loves smoothies. <laughs> uh, I love it. this way? Yeah, yeah. Amy. And this is Mackerel. Oh. <laughs> I'm not one of those people that takes my dog everywhere. I just rescued him, so that's why. He's okay. Lori <laughs> can trust, that's all. <laughs> I'm Shantia. I'm Creon. Alicia. Eric Jackson. Isaiah. Will. Danny. Amy. Michelle. Prophet. Maria. Danielle. De Niro. All right. Thanks, guys. Um, So we'll get this party started. Uh, It's funny because uh, this morning I woke up and I saw an Instagram meme and it really resonated with me. Um, It said, I never learned anything while I was talking. And it resonated, especially for tonight, because this is actually, of all the Idea Fountain episodes, the topic I know the least about. Mm. And you're a person I've known a really long time, but probably of all the guests, the person I've spent the least amount of time with. Mm -hmm. So on that note, Mike, I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, first, I just want to say thank you. Uh, it's, 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 uh, I, I play music, but it's always weird to have a mic because I feel like I'm so detached from all you. Um, so I'm Mike Delarocha, uh, organizer, happens to be an artist. I have the privilege every day to work alongside Tia Shantia Osho over here, who should actually have her own episode who, um, at Revolve Impact. Uh, I'm from Oxnard. I was born in Oxnard, farm working community. Uh, then raised in Santa Cruz, East Ventura. I came out to LA in, man, I'm going to age myself, 1995 to go to UCLA, which transformed my life, gave me a framework for the world, um, and have dedicated myself to trying to bring as many people together as possible um, and working with the most marginalized. And like uh, Father Greg says from Homeboy, uh, standing alongside and with those most marginalized so they can stop being demonized. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about my work and my family, uh, 
I think like if we think about who's a leper of society, it's oftentimes gangsters or those that serve time in prison. And so those are my family members and my peeps and I love them. And so I do everything to humanize and share love and stories and change policy for that pop those populations. So. So it was crazy because this is so unexpected, the day that changed my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working in radio, and Mike invited me to an event at the Juvenile Detention Center in Selmar. And I had been doing youth work for a long time. I'd been doing community work. And he invited me because John Forte was going to perform and meet with the kids. Make some noise if you know who John Forte is. All right, good, good, good. If not, we'll tell you later. Um, But uh, it was really interesting to me because I'd done this youth work. I was really aware of what was going on in the community. And I had done other kinds of community things like... You know, for the radio station, we'd visit Children's Hospital, and Mm. I could go on the cancer ward. And I think because I'm so action-oriented, like always trying to figure out what the best moment or best thing to do is to solve a problem, I wouldn't get super emotional about it. And we went up to Silmar, and at the time, it was the biggest juvenile detention facility in the Western Hemisphere. And I didn't know that that was going on in our own backyard. And it was so crazy because we got there, and I'll never forget, you know when you have those moments in your life that really do change you? You can remember everything down to the second to the outfit you were wearing. And I had on big old stunner shade sunglasses. And we walked in and we had to go through, you know, really intense security to get in. And as soon as I got in, I wasn't feeling well and I got really upset. And I got so upset, I was crying. But it was so weird because I wasn't crying because I saw 10 specific things and had thought about it and processed it. I was just crying. And I had carpooled with people and I didn't want to make a scene or make it about me. So I was like standing against the chain link fence crying and I didn't know what was happening to me. And then I made it through the event and I cried all the way from Silmar to Los Angeles until about 11 o'clock that night. And it was so weird because it wasn't a mental connection. It was like it affected me on a cellular level. And it was really crazy because um, I didn't know how to process it. I, in my gut, I wasn't thinking I need to go back next Saturday and change this. I was going to. I wonder if this is a past life thing. <laughs> and um, I ended up talking to a real trusted source about it. Um, there's this man who's unbelievable. He's an author. And um, uh, his name's Maladoma Somme. Mm. And I asked him about it. And he said, do you ever get an idea and go, oh. And I was like all the time (laughs) like those light bulb moments that you can't control your body because you jump in the air like I'm the jerk at work we'll be in a meeting and somebody else is talking and I'll get the idea and scream and I can't control it and he said that's energy he's like you're sensitive to energy and you walked into a space where the energy was sick and it's so sick it made you sick 
physically ill. And he said, let's not talk about prisons for a minute. Let's talk about health care. The way prisons are set up in America, it's as if you broke your leg and the hospital was a place they just went and threw you in for a determined amount of time and you knew you could get out on a date. And when that day rolled around, you would have gotten no treatment. You would have just been stuck with a lot of other sick people. And when you got out, you would have not healed properly and probably would have been more sick than when you went in. And the chances of you having to go back to that hospital were like 80%. I was like, wow, I get it now. And uh, I always, that's always really stuck with me. And I haven't been back. And I can feel really hopeless at time on like what you can do to make change in the world when it comes to politics and stuff. And um, I think this is happening in a really interesting time. This chat, especially everything that's been happening with immigration. So I couldn't be more excited to have you here today. Mm, thank you. Uh, my first question, and this was a real trip to me. So I went about 10 years ago to Silmar and um, it's been a long time so you remember things and I wanted to fact check for the interview first I couldn't find any information online about the facility all I wanted to check capacity if it was the largest in the western hemisphere and all there was was page after page after page of links from lawyers on what to do if your kid gets locked up mm. So will you start by talking a little bit, maybe not only about the lack of information, but specifically paint a picture for everybody here or everybody listening that hasn't heard it of what it's like. Hmm. So I don't know if it's because you just shared that story, but I'm like getting emotional. <laughs> um so um, I'm one of four people on my mom's side that's never served time in a prison or a jail or immigrant detention center. And uh, I'm very, uh, you know, we're, we don't have control of what bodies we're born into. But I'm very clear that as a light-skinned cyst uh, male that I've had a lot of privileges in my life. I don't look as dark as my cousins. I have a lot of tattoos, but they're covered up. They're not on my face or on my neck. And... Uh, and, you know, I wasn't abused as a child like my cousins were, and not because they had, like, my uh, aunts and uncles are bad people. It's because they had trauma from war, literally in Vietnam, or trauma of America's uh, lack of ability to provide economic opportunity. And so um, the issue is really personal. I can kind of, I'll share some facts so I can center myself, and then I'll talk about that day. Um so we live in the largest uh, cage that the world's ever known. We incarcerate more people today than uh, in the 1860s when slavery was legal. Um, right here in L.A., since we're in talking about Los Angeles, uh, we live in the, in the our sheriff's department is the largest law enforcement entity in the world. Um, in terms of a sheriff's, the only other department that's bigger than the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department is our uh, Department of Homeland Security on a federal level. Uh, our jail system is the largest in the world. 
by de facto, that analogy is perfect because the largest mental health hospital in America is our LA County jail system. Uh, because 60 to 70% of people cycling in and out are dealing with mental health issues and in need of love, health, and treatment. Our probation system, both the adult and juvenile, and I'll get into the juvenile one in a second, is the largest in the world. And yet we in LA, the cultural capital of the world, like to think of ourselves as so liberal and progressive, yet we're caging children and babies. And so that'll lead to the day that transformed, I'd say, both of our lives. And I don't know if I even shared this to you. So ever since I was a kid, I loved to, to play music. I was like, I grew up singing. Um, I'm a mama's boy all the way. Like I was um, a preemie. I wasn't supposed to be alive. Uh, when my mom went in three months earlier uh, to have me, the doctors told my dad, you have to choose between your wife or your newborn. And of course, like years later, when I had the courage to ask, you're going to choose your partner and your wife. Thank God we both survived. But uh, Pete White, who's a dear friend of mine from Alley County, always says him and I came out swinging from the beginning uh, because we were always fighting for air. Um, and so anyways, uh, with that being said, I just skated and was in punk bands uh, since I was uh, 11 years old. And so... Um, you know, those of us in music or have been in bands, you know, it's like being married to three or four other people. And it's hard enough being married to one, you know, and so all these personalities. So uh, I had met John Forte um, when actually he was inside prison. And the thing about John, he uh, he used to, um, well, still is an incredible musician, but he wrote a lot and produced a lot for the Fugees. So that Fugees record, the score, uh, he was re really instrumental in that, in that record and it, you know, uh, was Grammy nominated and super talented. So he was gonna go off on his own and do uh, his own record. And at the time, NSYNC was selling a million records uh, in like days, like two days. And John sold about 250,000 records, which at the time, like if you imagine that today, you'd be like a superstar. But at the time, uh, commercially, it was it was good, but um, it didn't it didn't add up. And so he did what a lot of us do is he just started slanging and he got caught up and then he served uh, some time in prison. Uh, the irony is the the second Bush um, uh, got him out of prison. Uh, because his um, Orrin Hatch, a senator, um, also a singer-songwriter like myself, his favorite artist was Carly Simon. And Carly Simon helped uh, Carly's son, uh, was really close with John, and so she advocated on his behalf and was basically, I'll play music with you if you can tell your, your buddy, President Bush, to let this, uh, this young man out. But before that, he had a really heavy sentence, wasn't it? Like ten years or yeah, more? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was like think of uh, fourteen, and he served seven and got out. And so to celebrate his year <laughs> out, I was like, let's go to the largest juvenile prison on earth, which was in Silmar. Um, and at the time, like, just a, I'm a visual person. If you took a globe and cut it in half, everything that on that half, the most young people were in this these cages about twenty miles from here. 
So he said yes, and so we went and did this thing called Babies Behind Bars. And that's when we went and we took uh, musicians inside during the holidays. Uh, those of us that have been um, incarcerated know that's the worst time because if your cellmate gets just the card and you don't, not only psychologically and spiritually is it damaging, but you like wonder, can I keep going? And so we wanted to come in and give love through music and we gave books and like have speakers. And I'll never forget the reason why it changed my life, being in bands, uh, John went up there um, with his locks and acoustic guitar. And I remember coming and sitting down. I was with six young women, uh, ages like 15, 16, all black and brown. And he went up there and just opened his heart with an acoustic guitar and just started singing. And me and these women just started bawling. And at that moment, I said, that that that's kind of what I want to do. And it was interesting because... The next day, the band I was in was opening for John at the Roxy. But I was like, I think that's more of Mike there. And so uh, I'll never forget. I, I was so beat up that on the way home, uh, I went to this like vegan restaurant, and had food by myself to decompress. Because like, even like you get desensitized doing this work. But like it was the same thing. There was something about a moment being around that that young energy and the female energy. We, we were just one oneness, if you will. And so I remember going home, and I I was so in my head that I passed my house, like because I wasn't even thinking. I wasn't even here. And when I turned around, I remember seeing um, this garage sale, and there was an acoustic guitar. And so I went uh, and and I saw. Um, Actually, it was this beautiful woman had the guitar. And I was like, damn, I want that guitar. Um, and then I was getting in my car and the guy saw and he came up to me. He's like, hey, do you want this guitar? She's not going to take it. And I was like, well, how much was it? And she, he's like, it's 40 bucks. And I had just bought a house and I was going to get married. And so those those of us that know when you're going to get married, you got to ask permission. And especially in my household, you got to ask your wife for permission. So I called Claudia and I was like, hey, babe, there's this guitar. It's like $40. She's like, you have five guitars. I'm like, yeah, but it's not this guitar. You know? <laughs> it's always another so, side of the story. <laughs> so long story short, she said, yes, I went, got two 20s from the ATM. I went back, got the guitar, and I wrote my first song on the acoustic guitar that night. And I remember it was a Saturday. It was December 19th of 2007 or eight. And so that tr changed my trajectory. But... One thing I will say is, like, um, I just found out a stat that's super troubling. K through 12 high school, who do you think has the most expulsions and suspensions? No, no, what grade? I'm sorry. Seventh grade? Twelfth. Twelfth grade? Ninth grade? So, yo, the most suspensions today in the United States of America happens in preschool. 250 preschoolers are suspended a day. In America? In America. No, 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 no. In America. 250 this is America. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you look at African-American babies, because I have a five-year-old who's in preschool, um, they make blacks make up roughly around like 15 to 17% of the national population. They make up 48% of the preschoolers that continue to be expelled and suspended. And you think about the trajectory of where that takes folks. 
And then you think about prison construction. Prison construction is based upon the number of young people. And since we're a multicultural society, the number of young people in the third grade who could read or write. So if you can't read or write in the third grade, they project this is how many prisons we need to build. So um, this, is, this is the land before Trump that's just being exaggerated. I remember two other things from that day really stuck with me. Um, one was uh, John Forte was giving his speech and his advice to the young people was, um, while you're here, don't just focus on the number. Don't just focus on how many days you have left. Don't just focus on the date that you get out. Find a way to make every day matter starting today. And then I was standing next to a security guard and I saw her completely roll her eyes <laughs> and I wanted to go swinging. Mm. I, I just couldn't even believe like, you know, why? You know, it, it's just, it, it really blew my mind. And then the other thing that stuck with me was I remember seeing at the time what looked like to me a building the size of a high school. Mm. And I don't know the numbers, but I asked what that building was and it was the building for juveniles with life sentences and they weren't allowed to come on the field for the event. When uh, I was planning tonight, I called Mike to check in and um, I was really surprised because I was kind of fact checking and asking him about some of these memories I had mm. and I was blown away because you said things have actually got better mm. since we went. I'll say three three things. One, uh, one about that that guard that was rolling it was his or who was a woman. Her eyes. The thing about mass incarceration um, is that it dehumanizes all of us, the workers and the loved ones inside. And we gotta remember, in these small towns, it's literally the same family. It's like you're locking up literally your aunt or uncle or cousin. So that that's what to me it's like. It's such a destructive system that we're basing economies around something that's painful, hurtful, and destructive to everyone that's touched by it, even the workers. Um, that yard she's talking about, they call it the unfit ward, which is young people tried as adults are going to be going to adult prison as soon as their time is done. And the irony of that is like uh, we were playing the show um, there and they could, you know, it was supposed to be for everybody. That was the, the goal. But the everybody... Um, meaning those 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 serving life sentences couldn't mix with the general population, so they could only watch us, right, on these TV screens. But the, the effed up thing was the TV screens had no sound. So you were, they were just... So once I found that out, we actually went um, cell by cell and performed little acoustic things for the, before we could do something different. And then the third thing I'll say, so this is 10 years ago, a concentrated effort of organizers... Uh, you know, I've been talking a lot about how effed up LA or the country is, but the flip side is we have some incredible organizers and in, in grassroots organizations that have dedicated their lives to changing and transforming the system. So in LA, because of the work of these groups like the Youth Justice Coalition and others, we've decreased our juvenile population by 50%. So that prison now is no longer the largest in the world. Um, at the time, it was roughly, I think, eight to 900 and it's probably 200 now. And that trend is not just unique to LA. It's also 
across the country. But the other thing I also just say it's because uh, you know we seem to have more compassion for children. That's why like the the border crisis right now, like all of a sudden. <laughs> People are like, oh, my God, we shouldn't be locking up toddlers in cages. We shouldn't be locking up anyone in cages. But at least I'll take it as the entry point. Um, but um, I just want us to be mindful that uh, if you're a young person and you're not in that lockup, um, but you're still wearing an ankle bracelet or you're still going into another thing, you're still in a cage. You're still under surveillance. And, uh, you know. It's like, how would we treat our own child or our own mother, father? Because most people inside have kids. That's how we should be looking at this. So we, we talked about on the phone, too. I shared another personal story when you were talking about compassion for kids mm. um, of something I went through. Um, my mentee and her boyfriend uh, years ago were involved in a drive-by shooting. They were the victims. Um, they shot up the front yard while my mentee was in the front yard with the baby. And they put a gun to her boyfriend's head and said... Uh, we'll be back because they ran out of bullets. And they got wrapped up in this attempted murder trial. And it was really intense because they were the victims, but they were pulled out of school um, every single week to go to the pretrial and just sit in court all day. Thankfully, the mentoring program, youth mentoring, was taking having volunteers take them to court. I couldn't. You know, I, girls got to work. Um, and the day before Thanksgiving... Um, there are no, the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, um, they said, you don't have to come to court tomorrow, uh, because it's a holiday. We'll call you next week. Uh -huh. And the mentoring program heard that. And, um, Jose, Vicky's boyfriend had just turned 18 and they didn't go to court on Wednesday and Thanksgiving happened, and on Friday, they busted into Jose's oh. house, and they arrested him for not going to court, and then they put him into the county jail because he was now 18, and the shooters found him and beat him up so bad they put him in the hospital. And that was just kind of the moment where it really hit me all these people want to help youth organizations and then you have a birthday and nobody cares. And so I think that's really interesting about how, whether it's the youth work or the immigration, the kids are important and it's a gateway, but we've got a lot more work to do. Right. Right. I mean, I think right now, uh, the other thing I just want to say because of the parallel, uh, it's by design. This whole thing's by design, Right. Um, and people want when we talk about mass incarceration people want to say it's a black issue when we talk about immigration they want to make us think it's just a Latino issue those are the images we're fed that's the media's fed immigration is a criminal justice system it's the same system that you enter into and then you get pulled and then when we think about like who is impacted right now currently on these immigration policies it's ton of Haitians and black immigrants and Muslim immigrants and Latinx immigrants and and basically people fleeing violence like you know we're, we're kidnapping children at the border right now I don't know if people really understand the gravitude of what we're doing we're having administration saying there is no due process meaning you should not have any court or an opportunity to try like and the other thing we always talk about in the office is how far we went just like in two weeks where it's like before um 
you wouldn't it would be like not even like no way you're not gonna lock up a baby like a literally a toddler you're not gonna lock up you're not gonna steal some person's child and put them in foster care you just you never do that well they did it and now all of a sudden we're like oh we won we're gonna incarcerate the whole family now and we're and it's like our starting points now are so far back and so the one thing that I'm hopeful of is during this moment, like black, brown, and other communities that care about these issues can see it's an issue of criminalization. It's an issue of incarceration. It's an issue of like literally human rights. And, you know, like we say, you know, here in the office, like if this was any other country in the world, the United Nations the, would come in because this would be a, like an international crisis, you know? And so, but because we're the United States, it doesn't happen, you know? And so, anyways, so yeah, on, on the other side, though, I do think the opportunity is there. And I do think people are seeing its intersection because the only way we can survive out of this state that we're in is if we actually see the actual bigger uh, connection going on and see ourselves in each other. Um, and because, you know, forgot that quote but you know like come after one if you don't say anything and they go after another one if they don't say anything until there's no one left and we're all in a in a doghouse so um the adult thing is really important because in that example he was a child on a wednesday and then he was an adult on a thursday and then no one gave a shit about him after that and you could share the same stories and say well that's the adult he sh- he or she should have been better. No, not really, you know. Uh, especially with the education system where an 18-year-old has the emotional capacity and uh, education of, right. you know, maybe a third grader. It's pretty crazy. Um, so I want to talk about, um, I, there's like a really heavy feeling in the room. I think I've heard sniffles. And I started out talking about being emotional. You got emotional. So I actually want to talk about activating a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll tell you, from personal experience I'll be really honest I've had two protest situations that were very scary for me Um, I'm not saying the causes weren't more important but it kind of freaked me out from going to protest Um, two um, I feel really lost with politics a lot of times I'm trying to learn more Um, but when there's messages to call your politicians, um, I sometimes feel like it's the Kiss FM request line. I don't know if it's going to count. And so tell us how you find hope and what we can do. I'll give, uh, two examples to, so one, um, in 2014, four years ago, um, some of us in this room were part of this. Uh, we we ran a ballot initiative called Proposition Forty Seven, um, because the way that our structure these are all policies, predominantly man made policies, but they're policies. Everything we're talking about, um, and policies are done by people we elect to office. But even those that we elect to office, they don't got the votes to do the deep structural transformation that we need to reinvest resources from punishment to prevention from harm to treatment and so um prop 47 in 2014 did three things um i gave two years of my life to making sure this passed um the first thing it did is uh we have to do deep sentencing reform and people don't want to touch sentencing 
So we took six uh, low-level felonies, predominantly petty theft in um, drug possession, and said these should not be classified as felonies. They should be misdemeanors. Um, that was the first thing. The second thing we, we did is we said, by doing that, you have tens of thousands of less people in state prison and local county jails. So if you have less people in prison, then you could take the savings and reinvest those savings into education, treatment, and victim services. And then the third thing that it did is we know that the war on drugs uh, for the last 30, 40 years has impacted millions of people. In California, it's actually a million. And so we wrote the bill to be retroactive. So what does that mean? That means um, if you have a felony, one of these six felonies, uh, you can apply for a job and not check the box that says you're a felon. Uh, that means that you could apply for a Pell Grant like I did at UCLA and get it because if you're a felon, you can't apply for a Pell Grant. It means that you can live in Section 8 housing because if you have a felony conviction, you can't live in Section 8 housing. And for a lot of people, it means you can vote for the first time. So we won by 60% in 2014, and that led to um, California being one of the states that started moving the country to start looking at other ways outside of the government structure that everyday people like us could take back. The, thing, the other thing that makes me really excited, besides this kitty. It's Benina. Benina. Is um, we all have a chance right now. Remember how I started about the sheriff's department being the largest in the world? Well, you know, um, you see on the news a lot of this stuff of uh, predominantly young black uh, and brown bodies being murdered at the hands of police. Well, our police department doesn't have a mechanism to be held accountable. Uh, because of the work of a lot of organizations, we finally got a civilian oversight committee a few years ago. But that committee doesn't have any power. What does that mean? They don't have power to like subpoena power to actually see, well, oh, these cops over here have a history and pattern of reckless abandonment of you know not being what they're supposed to be doing but you can't do anything because you can't have access to those records or information so right now we are literally and i should have brought um petitions we're raising we're gathering signatures to put on the 2020 ballot uh in la an initiative that would give the oversight commission uh, authority um to have subpoena power to actually hold police officers and sh the sheriff's department accountable and it would charge this oversight committee uh, with the mandate to create a jail reduction plan so that what we did on 47 and other stuff, you have less people. So how can we reinvest those resources? And this is really important because the supervisors right now have agreed to build two new jails at the cost of $3.5 billion in L.A. And the irony is like back to messaging because we work in culture and policy is that they're calling it a mental health center but it's a mental health jail and so they, they manipulate the words and um you know if you build it they will come type of thing and so if if and when we get on the ballot and if and when we win um that'll be a monumental shift and so in you know, last night at Revolve Impact, our office, we had mayors from Compton and Inglewood, President of City Council. We had a dinner talking about race. And what gave me hope was I can't control the federal stuff, but I can control what happens in L.A. And all of us actually can. And ev everything always starts on a local level, never starts on a national level. So the killing, again, in Pittsburgh now is national news, but that was a local incident. 
And so we actually have an opportunity to elect the next DA here, which is also in 2020. We also have the opportunity to elect, uh, you know, the sheriff, which is right now. We offer an opportunity to, to vote for this reform LA jails when we do make the ballot. So we actually do have a ton of power. And if you look at these city council seats, for example, yo, we should run someone in here because you could win with like four to 5,000 people. And I'm, I know probably more, almost probably all of you have more Facebook friends or Twitter followers. And, well, we were talking <laughs> you know? about what you just happened. We were talking about what just happened in New York, right? Yes. What's her name? What is, uh, um, Alexandria? No, it's, uh, no, no. I'm no. oh, good thing yeah. we can edit this. Cause I just posted, I, I just posted her. But we have Ben Jealous in Maryland, which was huge, who better be the first governor of Maryland. Uh, we have Stacey Abrams, who will be the first African-American woman governor in the history of the United States uh, in Georgia. Um, and then in the Bronx, we have... We have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Ocasio-Cortez, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah and she um, defeated the... Democrat like, the first time in 14 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's 28. And she's fierce. Um, and she ran unapologetically on a, on a platform of putting people first. Didn't take any corporate money. And it's a huge, huge thing. I, I was talking to a friend today and they were thinking about like at what point, I'm an independent, so. But at one point did the Democrat Party say, dude, we're losing. We've been losing. So at what point do you acknowledge that and let like this badass 28-year-old Latina just take over, you know? Um, My favorite thing is, I mean, this is going to be shots fired, but I feel like there's a lot of 28-year-olds I work with that are like, oh, I wasn't even alive when Smells Like Teen Spirit came out. (laughs) (laughs) And she just bossed up on politics in New York City, 28. 28, yeah. So there, I mean, there is uh, signs of hope. And again, I think that was, again, it was local people coming together. She would serve in Congress, but it was the Bronx that came together. Um, and like uh, State Assembly member Michael Blake, also in the Bronx, is another person that basically did what she did, you know, so. And I think so many people probably think they can't get involved in politics because, it's going to cost a lot of money or the system's corrupt, but it's happening. Yeah. But let's not trick ourselves. It is expensive, but we can win if we organize. It's all about organizing, but it's also about having the, the money. But like, dude, I think about it. If we had, if we just literally did what you do on your podcast, if each one of us said, we're going to do that and bring five people, then you can win because it's literally like the, the new strategy Actually, I don't even know if I want to share this on here. I'm not going to share this, but there is a strategy <laughs> that if we did this yeah. and had, uh, you know, parties got and together, combos. got off our phones and just got together and had conversations. Well, because this is what I was, this is what I was going to say. Fuck it. If we all come together and have like absentee ballot parties for this election in November. So like, yo, you're going to come and hear a dope conversation by Tia Osho at, you know, Julie's, Julie's house. But your entrance is, is your ballot. Like how many people, how and many votes are nothing shady. Here? It's not like you got to fill it out in no. front of us. You know, just saying. So I'm saying. But think about that. All, so many of us are party planners and we know how to rock shows and Prophet's one of the dopest MCs. Like, you know what I mean? Like, dude. 
I love it. I'm so. down to host one. Um, uh, so this is a conversation that I've been having a lot at work. I've been having a lot with my friends. Um, people, especially with everything that's been happening on the immigration tip, have felt so hopeless and don't know what to do. Um, I want to open it up and see if anybody else has any questions for Mike. And if they do, say them loudly. Yeah, Amy. So you had talked about the reduction yeah. in the juvenile detention populations yeah. as a result of these particular organizations and their organizing. Yes, so yeah. what exactly are they doing that's causing that reduction impact? Like what are some of the initiatives and services that they're providing that are having a direct effect? Yeah, so I think... A couple of things. One is I think like you have advocacy groups that are making sure that the government does uh, addresses this issue in a more uh, humane way. Right. And so they're making sure that they not only like change the existing policies, but implement policies like that are being passed by voters. And then you have direct service providers like a place called home, like Homeboy Industries, like others that can actually treat folks. Right. So I think it was a concerted effort to just like keep pushing holding people accountable and so like when i say policy and service policy advocacy service organizing so like right now what i think what we need in this country uh is a culture um not a volunteerism but an organizing culture where we understand there's there's systemic issues that we need to address and we need to address them at different levels right and so, like, if I can say what could be really helpful is, like, everyone here, for example, could donate to a youth, to the Youth Justice Coalition, who's, like, they, they're, they're in Inglewood, have an incredible center called Chuko's Justice Center that um, they literally, because of eminent domain, their building uh, is going to be demolished to build parking for the new metro going there. And their center houses 30 other organizing groups. So they need money to, to get into a new place. All of us can give them some money, for example, right? And that's supporting, right? All of us could go over there and figure out, hey, I have a talent. Is there something that I can offer? All of us can have conversations like these. These are really, really, really important um, to have that kind of thing. Um, and all of us can do the real deep self-work needed um, to see ourselves in each other. And then all of us can call our rep. All of us could vote. We can do all that stuff. Um, and it's just a consistent thing that we have to keep doing. And the calls really do matter. Yeah. I, I mean, I've worked in government almost 10 years and we have to log every fax call, um, email. And so th they do pay attention. Um, I know people like to say they don't, but I could personally honestly say you that they do. So that's powerful. I, I have a question. So a lot of the problem with the, uh, you know, police not being held accountable is because of the super powerful uh, police unions. Right. Do you think that Supreme Court decision that just came down and nuclear bombed public sector unions is going to open up the accountability lane in that? That's a great question. That is a good question. Yeah, geez. Um, as someone that's a union baby, my dad was a, a union president for for uh, decades, and I'm part of the musicians union. I think it's such a travesty of the Supreme Court case to gut the only one of the only mechanisms protecting working class folks. Um, I, I don't. In terms of, I think it's it's going to demolish public sector for sure, 
And I, you know, in terms of law enforcement, I don't think it's going to, it's going to do that. Nah, because it's, you know, I, I, uh, I never like to label folks, but you know, you could, you can make the, the strong argument, like the biggest mafia gang in a city is the law enforcement. Right. So, um, so, you know, with that being said, that's why this reform LA jails is super important because the only way that we could address the systemic issues is to have power to hold people and systems accountable. So I want to, you've spoke so highly of Tia mm -hmm. and I just met her tonight <laughs> and she is sitting over there quietly and speaking to me with her eyes. I want to invite you over to sit here for a second. And since you're partners with Mike, in these efforts no 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 i'm yeah. gonna get up no yeah and um just no come on come just okay say hi hi or what's your thing hi tia always has a lot and introduce yourself sure. okay hi everyone um my name's Anshantia Osho, and I'm the director of Impact. I Revolve Impact. I've known Mike for a long time, longer than we remembered until we figured it out when we started working together. <laughs> and I think this is a really interesting conversation, but when we have conversations about, I've been also organizing uh, around immigrant rights and racial justice for six years, and was my mom was a community organizer, so I've been... Uh, you know, fighting the good fight since I was like three years old because she would just carry me around with her um, and, uh, you know, clean the sh up the streets. I think conversations around policy and like what's going on and like trying to make those connections are really good um, when you have like an understanding. But how many of us like understand what the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors do? Like who knows your supervisor's name? Mm -hmm. Right. That's a big problem. Like if you don't even know what they do, then you don't understand how a three point five billion dollar jail plan gets passed in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then you have groups and organizations like the Justice LA Coalition trying to educate the public about the three point five billion dollar jail plan when they literally don't even know the person who represented them mm -hmm. in voting to pass it. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, really great question about like, you know, what does organizing do? What do advocates do? We go and we meet with the board of supervisors and they look us in the eye and tell us, I really understand everything that you're saying about how horrible the jail expansion plan is and all of the ways that people's rights are being violated. L.A. County Jail um, uh, sheriff's deputies have killed people and lied about it have uh, disappeared people and lied about it, have raped people, robbed people, um, and the Oversight Review Board can just like make a public report, but they don't have any power to discipline the people who have been found guilty of such egregious, abusive violations. And these same elected officials who say that they represent you look us in the face as advocates and say, and no, I will not withdraw my support for the $3.5 billion jail expansion plan. And no, I will not support the Civilian Oversight Review Board in holding uh, sheriffs who violate people's rights accountable. And that's what they tell us when we go in those rooms. Do they offer an explanation? Or just, no. Just who do they, what do they have to explain? Right. Because y'all don't even know who they are. <laughs> We're the ones who know who they are. How can we follow you and start to learn? 
um, revolveimpact.com, right? And <laughs> and on all social media. And we do a couple of things. We have a really awesome vertical called Schools Not Prisons, hashtag Schools Not Prisons. And even just going on the hashtag and going on our social channels, we talk about what's going on and we do it. And the great thing about working at Revolve is um, we meet people where they are because I know that my supervisor is Mark Ridley Thomas, but I also have been, like I said, like my mama and my grandmama were the type of people who made it their business to know who's making these decisions. Um, so we create really cool brands and content that's engaging so that you can learn something right and feel empowered to take action. And so uh, following campaigns, getting involved and then also paying attention and not. Uh, don't talk yourself out of, you know, when you hear a call to action. Don't talk yourself out of sending a tweet. Don't talk yourself out of, you know, picking up the phone and calling because mm -hmm. it actually does make a difference. Mm -hmm. It really does mean something. Um, my, I've done a lot of work around uh, police violence, of course, over the last five, six years, um, working around racial justice and with the uh, uh, being in the thick of things when uh, the Black Lives Matter movement was initiated and the police and sheriffs and law enforcement um those are our tax dollars at work like literally and so as their constituents as the people who are funding these uh people every single day to patrol and protect our communities the things that we believe that they're supposed to be doing right when those principles are violated it's not just the people that they violated that they should be held accountable to right it's not just uh, Samaria Rice, uh, Tamir Rice's mother, you know, 12 year old young man who was shot and killed by Cleveland police, um, supposed to be 16 years old this year. It's not just Samaria Rice that was violated. It's the entire city of Cleveland was violated when mm. that young man was shot and killed at the playground, mm. right? Everybody should have been up in arms, not just his mom, not just his little sister who saw him shot and killed and then was held in handcuffs, mm. you know, until her mother came to get her. Not just the family, not just the neighborhood, not just the organizers. Everybody in Cleveland who pays those officers salaries should have said, hell no. Mm. That isn't what, even if it's not just me, and I know there's a lot of things we can get into like, you know, identity and socialization and tribalism and all of these different things we should all be upset when a public servant violates someone and until we make it all of our business to hold the system accountable accountability is not about paperwork and policy um the system exists because we participate in it and i know if mike is in the room there's a lot of people here on your spiritual metaphysical tip right so we're all participating in this system and the good and the bad and the corruption and that's why you feel sick mm. when you go into a carceral system because it is you mm. we're all locked up right now the united mm. states incarcerates the largest number of people on the planet we are sick Mm. And it's not just the people who are behind the bars. Mm. All right. Um, I think Victoria, do you still have a question? Anybody else before we wrap up? Oh, Michelle's one in the back. We'll go Victoria and Michelle. I didn't have a question. Oh, you didn't? All right, Michelle. Um, I have a kind of a two-part question. You guys talked about immigration, mm. um, and I'm glad you're both up there because I was going to ask if you could change what's happening to these families that are immigrating, what would you do? Mm. And the other part of it is, what happens when other 
families immigrate to other countries like Mexico or England, since I'm not versed very well on immigration? Mm. So it depends on what color you are um, when you go to another country. Um, we can get into that later. If I could change what happens when people come to the border. So um, if somebody's fleeing violence are conditions that are so rough that they're willing to walk four miles, or excuse me, for four months straight um, and somehow pay you know, smugglers and risk their lives on trains and especially like people who are pregnant or have like young children. The first thing that I would want them to be greeted with is compassion and food and some place to lay down and ask them what happened that you were willing to walk for four months just to get here. Um, and what is it that you need? I think that the idea that we lock people up as soon as they get to the border is uh, it's just it's madness. You know, they haven't done anything but walk across an imaginary line. Mm-hmm. Um, and in other countries, it depends on which country it is. So if you uh, are, again, like fleeing violence and persecution, um, right now there's a refugee camp at the northern border too, and nobody's going to talk about that because... No, everybody feels like everybody thinks that we're going to run away to Canada, huh? They're going to lock you up. That's what's going to happen. So you get across the northern border um, and the Canadian Mountie will lock you up, but he'll be nice about it. And then, um, sorry. Yes. So you know these things. Okay. So they lock you up before a shorter amount of time and then they have a plan and they release you. So because Canada doesn't have large immigrant detention centers like we have in the United States. Wait, be clear. When they say they release you, do they release you into Canada or do they send you home? No, no, into Canada. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Canada has a... Um, they welcome. A, like a... I don't even know how to call it. Basically, Canada and other advanced uh, industrial nations have a policy where they bring you in, they process you, they determine whether or not you committed a crime in the country where you're coming from, and then they let you go. You can't get citizenship. You can't usually get any type of services um, or maybe even any assistance that help you in your, you know, to be successful where you are in that country, but they won't just keep you detained. The detention system is a very American idea and practice to hold you locked up. Now, if you're in Germany, you might end up living in a tent city or a refugee camp, if you're in France, you might end up living in a refugee camp or a tent city type situation that they roust and like take everybody's tents away like every six months. Why? Where are they going to go? You know, you don't have housing for them. Um, so the difference is that you won't be held indefinitely. Only in the United States would you be held indefinitely for simply just not being a citizen of the country and having the nerve to show up there. And that's a new that's a new phenomenon. That's not like a law. They're just it's literally practice. it's a it's policy a and a practice. That our Department of Homeland Security, because of the president or forty five, basically said so. It, yeah. you, to there's nothing. To discourage people from yeah. coming here, but um, and I don't know if anybody here is an immigrant or has immigrant parents, or refugee or refugee parents, or no people in your family. There is absolutely nothing that will discourage you once you've made your decision to come to the United States. There's nothing that will stop you. Um, the reason why thousands of people die in the Mediterranean every year trying to uh, migrate to Europe is because there is nothing that will stop right. me. The reason I'm sitting here right now is because my uncle 
uh, wanted to move to Phoenix, Arizona from Lagos, Nigeria. He was like following a televangelist preacher. It's a long story. <laughs> um, his visa was not approved. And so he bought a ticket to Mexico. And the legend in our family is that he bought a Jeep and like cowboy boots and drove himself across the border. <laughs> That's the story. Um, drove himself across the border. And because under President Reagan, things were a little bit different, he was able to naturalize and send for my dad and my aunt to come here. Only reason I'm sitting here today is because he is like nah i'm going i'm going okay you know so um incarceration like carceral solutions to human problems are just literally does it work it doesn't work you know we need problem we need solutions that actually solve the issue thank you so much for coming both of you yes and thanks to everybody that came and participated tonight. I know I learned a lot. And um, I'm excited to have more of these, especially around the election. Yes. Bring your ballot. Um, and uh, uh, anything else you want people to know before we wrap? Now is the time. Yeah, I would yeah. just say now is the time. <laughs> now is the time. If you ever wonder, like, oh, in the 60s, I would have been now. Whatever it is that you said yeah. that you would have did, it's right now. Yeah, it's like, right it's happening now. right now. Like, gone and do that. I just would just say, uh, you know, when people say it's, and I'm not trying to be corny, but when people say this is like a life or death situation, it literally is life or death for so many families right now. So um, it really does make a huge difference. And then the other thing is um, people always ask me, like, what can you do? And, like, the biggest thing we can do is, like, go back to our immediate family members and have these hard conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, because like these are, you know, like Trump is in the office because 54% of white women voted for Trump who just is about to elect a Supreme Court justice is going to take every right away of a woman's body, for example. And we could stop this if we go to the hardest places for us to make transformation. It isn't actually the supervisor. It's our own homes. And that's why a lot of people like, I mean, so many people come out to L.A., and they're like, why are you here? Oh, because I got a racist uncle back in so-and-so. I'm like, okay, well, when are you going to go talk to your racist uncle? Because he'll never listen to me. But you may have a chance to actually change his mind, you know? And so I would say the areas that we have influence are not, they're literally our homes and, our, and the people that we hang out with. And, you know, we know all of our friends and family, so you know the entry point in. So I would just ask that you find what that is to humanize and educate about all the things we were talking about. Thank you. Cool. All right.